Now will you take your Bibles, and I pray that we will bow our hearts before the Lord and what He has said now to be blessed by Him. Revelation 22. Revelation 22. My dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, today let's consider the paradise of God. The paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this last chapter of your word, may you be gracious to us and allow us to wrap up the stuff of this book and wrap up the stuff of the whole book. Father, help us to see that the way things have been for so long since the fall are not the way they will be indefinitely, but you will come and you will change things and that you will bring us into a wonderful state, which primarily it will be wonderful because we'll be with you. And I pray that you will draw us to yourself this morning as we see it. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Treadville advertisements bombard us with beautiful pictures. We see sandy beaches and crystal clear waters of the Bahamas. We see rising, soaring mountains topped with snow in the Alps. We see the lush vegetation of the rainforests. We see the brilliant colors of the trees in New England in the fall. And all those pictures are meant to capture our attention and cause us to pull out our credit cards. Now, in a similar way, the last prophetic vision of the Apostle John, the fourth one, is meant to capture our attention. In chapter 21, verse 9 and following, we see that John is taken to a high mountain, where he sees a golden city, 1,500 miles square, a city surrounded by a jasper-like wall that's 72 yards tall. And he observes the general characteristics of the city, like the absence of a temple, the sun or moon or anything that's unclean. He sees the movement into the city as the nations bring their glory into it. And as John sees it, We see it as well. And that is because Christ wants us to experience this blessing. He is calling his people out of Babylon, chapter 18, verse 4, and he's calling them to enter the new Jerusalem. So, from the Lord, we need to know that God is not indifferent towards sinful, miserable man, he wants us to be with him. From the very beginning, God placed man into a garden full of good things to enjoy. But man chose a different path that led to destruction. But that's not the end of the story, because God has been on a mission to redeem and restore fallen mankind. And one day, God will rule over all, and none will oppose Him. That's the big story. How are we going to get to that point in history? The book of Revelation tells us. One day, Christ will take the scroll from the Father's hand and and act incremental judgment upon the earth. And ultimately, He is going to subject the earth to Himself. He will establish His kingdom. You know, human history is flush 
with the rise and fall of kingdoms. But when Christ's kingdom comes, it will be different. It will bring a millennium of peace. It will bring in a new creation. It will bring stability and tranquility. It holds for us something far better than we experience today. So back in chapter 21, we saw that eternity holds out a better creation because God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And eternity's better creation holds a close relationship with God, and it is the exclusive privilege of God's people. That was verses 1 through 8. Then in Revelation 21, 9 through the end of the chapter, we saw that eternity holds a better city. God is going to grant the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, which displays the glory of God and and enjoys the presence of God. Now we turn to Revelation 22. We turn to the close of chapter 4 of Revelation. That's the fourth vision of John. The end of this chapter. And what we see is that eternity holds out a better kingdom. A better kingdom. If you need a word that starts with C, you can write in the word center. You'll notice as you look at Revelation 22 that the term kingdom does not occur in the text. So I'm glad you're asking in your mind, why is he talking about a kingdom? Well, you see the word occurred twice in our passage in verse 1 and verse 3, the throne of God and of the Lamb. It is the throne of God and of the Lamb that is in the midst of this city. That's the focal point of the city. The presence of the throne is what points to the one who sits upon it, the sovereign. It points to the kingdom. And the Psalms often link a throne and a kingdom. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Psalm 47, verse 8. God reigns over the nations. He sits on His holy throne. So the book of Psalms is a wonderful book that proclaims the kingdom of God over all. The book of Revelation answers the question how all the various kings and kingdoms of earth will one day come under the direct rule of Jesus Christ. You see, Christ's kingdom today is not how it will be one day. During the millennium, Christ will reign with the saints on the earth. And now in Revelation 22, we learn that God and the Lamb have set their throne in the midst of the new creation and in the midst of the new city, Jerusalem. What we're going to find is that this kingdom in the end is better. It's even better than the millennial kingdom. As you look at Revelation 22, you'll see, and many have commented, that this text sounds like the Garden of Eden which is quite fitting for the Bible to begin and end with references to a garden. While it has features of the Garden of Eden, I found that's not how Jesus Christ described this. When Jesus wrote his letter to the Ephesian church in chapter 2 of this book, he calls this the paradise of God, chapter 2, verse 7. And perhaps there's no powerful and more glorious word to describe our future happy, blessed state than the paradise of God. 
verses 1 and 2, we'll see that eternity holds out the paradise of God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down through the middle of the street of the city. And this river shows us that God will satisfy all thirst. He's going to sustain with the water of life. We all know that water is vital to our existence. 60% of our bodies are made up of water. And it is essential that you and I stay hydrated. One of the most common wellness suggestions is that we take in a sufficient amount of water each day because water is life-giving and life-sustaining. That's for plants, for animals, for ourselves. And this water flows from the throne, which is to say God is the source of this stream. And since He's the source, we can be sure that this stream will never run dry. It will satisfy all thirst. And we know that this is the case because of what we already read in chapter 7. John wrote in chapter 7, verse 16 and 17, speaking of this future time, that they will no longer thirst. The Lamb will guide them to springs of living water. So this is a river from which we're meant to drink. John also told us in 7.16 that they will hunger no more. So not only will God satisfy all thirst, but He will satisfy all hunger. Chapter 22, verse 2. God is going to sustain with the tree of life. Look at verse 2. Also on the either side of this river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So this tree has an abundant variety of fruit. Now you can go online today and purchase a tree from Home Depot that has four varieties of cherries on one tree. You can do a whole lot with grafting. It's amazing. But this tree is going to have an abundant variety of fruit. It'll be amazing. And this tree is not just for looking at. It's for food. That's what was the case in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Genesis 2.9 says, The Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. That was the case back in Eden, but it's also going to be the case in the paradise of God. Again, Revelation 2.7, where Christ gave a promise to the overcomers of the church of Ephesus, he said, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the paradise of God is not only life-giving, but it's also, it's bountiful. It's delightful. It's not going to be slim pickings there. It's going to be a tasty smorgasbord in the paradise of God. And this is going to be the case each month. Now, it's strange to talk about eternity and then to talk about months. And perhaps this reference to months sounds out of place because you, perhaps like I, grew up on the King James where it reads in chapter 10, verse 6, time shall be no more. But as we went through Revelation 10, we saw that the point isn't that time is done, but there's no more delay for the fulfillment of God's promises. It's not trying to say there's no more time. Eternity is still going to have chronology. And through the time of eternity, what we find is that God is going to supply 
the best life in the paradise of God, which is in the city. Then we come to the end of verse 2, and there's a curious statement about the leaves of the tree. It says, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And don't you sit back and think, well, why do the nations need to be healed? There won't be any sickness, right? The curse is gone. Look at verse 3, of course. It's all gone. So people have to get ideas of why there's a tree with this healing capability. Some people say that it's a memorial of sorts that reminds people of times gone by, when times where people needed healing. Some people say that this shows that God has an ample supply of more than we actually need, and it's meant to magnify God and His provision. Some people say that it's meant to point us to the medicinal property of plants. For example, the willow tree. From the willow tree bark, it contains salicin. When we ingest that, it becomes salicylic acid. That's the stuff of aspirin. So it's helpful for mankind. But for whatever reason here, as we look at the tree of life, as we look at the water of life, and we take these things together, what becomes obvious to us is that those who dwell in God's paradise will always depend on God for life. We'll not become like God where we're self-sufficient. Instead, we'll be dependent And it will be a good life. It will be the best life we can imagine. The question then is, well, who is going to experience this paradise of God? Not everyone. Furthermore, not even those who expect to be there and be reunited with their loved ones who have gone before. And there's a reason why I'm saying that. And I understand that that might sound harsh. But I'm saying this because I want you to pay attention to what verse 3 says. I want you to notice a term that defines the people who inhabit the paradise of God. Verse 3. It refers to them as his servants. And the word there for servant refers to slave. A slave is someone who has a master who is in charge. A slave is someone who is not free to do as he pleases. And that doesn't describe most people who think they're going to heaven. They wouldn't identify as God's servants, as God being in charge of them. But whatever the case is for them, the question is for about you and me. How do you feel about being considered the slave of God, his servant? He's in charge. You're not free. Well, this book is written to these kinds of people. You can look at the first verse of the chapter, or you can go down to chapter 22, verse 6, where it talks about the fact that God gave this to show His servants, His slaves, the things that must take place. And the description of God's people throughout this book has been this term. God commands these people, chapter 19, verse 5, Praise God, all you His servants. It also is the term that shows God's care for his people. Chapter 2, verse 20 talks about sin that is impacting his servants. Chapter 7, verse 3 talks about the sealing of his servants. Chapter 19, verse 2 talks about the precious blood of his servants that he will avenge. 
See, he cares for them. What we find is that eternity's paradise is the privilege of God's servants. Because God's servants are the sole citizens of the city. And now we get to consider what will be their lot. Look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there. You recall that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the world was cursed. The the snake would move with difficulty. The woman would bear children and relate to her husband with difficulty. And the man would work with difficulty, Genesis chapter 3. But in the paradise of God, the curse is gone. And just reflect on that for a moment. It's hard for us to reflect on it because it's something so different than our current experience. There won't be temptation to sin. There won't be the prospect of falling under the curse of God. It'll be a safe place. It'll be a place where there is no hindrance to man's fellowship with God. That's wonderful. So God's servants alone will be secure there. Why? Well, because the throne of God and of the Lamb is there. He's not going to allow any of that. And they alone will worship God, the end of verse 3 shows us, and His servants will worship Him. We know from Romans 12 that what we are to do today is to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. That is our spiritual worship. In eternity, we will continue to worship Him. We will continue to worship God. And what that shows us is that eternity in the paradise of God will have a continual Godward dimension. I say that because the popular understanding of heaven is a utopia where God is hardly present. You're free to do as you choose, party away. But instead, all those who are present in the paradise of God will be God-word. They will worship God. Verse 4 tells us that they alone will see God. It says they will see His face. Going back to Exodus 33, we see that Moses asked to see the glory of God. And God replied to him, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. A man would die if he saw God because of God's unique holiness. John, this, the writer of this book, but the writer of the gospel, said in chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God. Paul said to Timothy, the pastor of the Ephesian church, in chapter 6, verse 16, God dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has seen, ever seen, or can see. But then we have verses that say something that seems incredibly opposite. Remember what Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount when he gave this promise? Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that goes to show us for the servants of God to be able to see God means that they are pure. Children, remember what happened after Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? 
talks about God coming and walking in the garden in the cool of the night. What did Adam and Eve do? It says that they hid from God, and they hid because of their sin. And isn't that the way we feel when we sin against someone? When we know we've wronged someone, we don't want to be around them. We feel uncomfortable around them. If we see them in passing, we might avoid having a face-to-face conversation with them because we're uncomfortable because we know we have wronged them. Now consider this. Is there anyone that you or I have wronged more than God? Yet we have this word that all God's servants see him. How can that be? Well, Hebrews tells us that we can draw near to God. We can see him because we've been made pure. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience by the blood of God. Of Christ. And brothers and sisters, in the Lord, in a moment we'll observe the Lord's Supper. And when we do so, we examine ourselves and we often sense the guilt of our sin when we come to the Lord's table. And it's at that time that we have to remind ourselves of the blood of Christ, which forgives us of all sin. And indeed, it's the blood of the Lamb that will enable God's servants to see the Lord. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, can you imagine what it will be like to see God and have no sense at all of guilt when you see Him? It will be a wonderful union. Verse 4 also says, and His name will be on their foreheads. We've already read that the name of the beast was on those who worshipped the beast, and the name of God was upon his servants whom he sealed. A name denotes ownership. So God's servants, they alone are gods. You think about names. We know about names because we wear clothing with names on it all the time. Our clothing tells where we've been when we get a souvenir shirt. Or our clothing tells us what team we cheer for because we have their name on it. Because we take pride in that name. But brothers and sisters, it's going to be so meaningful when we wear the name of God on our persons. This is what Christ promised to the overcomers of the Church of Philadelphia. He said to them who overcome, I will write on him the name of my God. And that will be a privilege, that it will be plain that we are gods. Verse 5, it says, And night will be no more. They will need no lamp, light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. The Lord will shine on them. And that language, bring, that language brings us back to the Aaronic blessing, when the priest would come and Say over the people of Israel these words from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And so the absence of night and the continual light of God is a blessing of God to His people. 
It is God's servants who alone who will be blessed in the paradise of God. That is to say, one day there will be no more fear of the dark. That's still a matter in my house. You've got to have a light on. I get it. None of us really enjoys when we're in pitch black. God's light one day will be a blessing for his servants. Now we come to the end of verse 5 and we consider the climactic blessing of the paradise of God. It says, and they shall reign forever and ever. They alone will reign. This is the last statement of John's fourth prophetic vision. The rest of it is the epilogue of the book. And this is where the progress of the book of Revelation has been heading since the close of the seven letters to the seven churches. You remember at the end of that section, chapters 2 and 3, Christ promised to the overcomers of the church of Laodicea that to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And a throne is a place from which you reign and rule. And here at the end of the book, at the end of John's prophetic vision, it's realized. It becomes true. The kingdom of God for us is going to come full circle. And there are various aspects of the kingdom of God. For example, when you and I were converted, we entered the kingdom of God and we left behind the domain of darkness, Colossians 1.13. Also, when we were converted, we became a kingdom. We became a kingdom over which Christ ruled. We were ruled by Christ, but one day we will rule with Christ. That is the third aspect of the kingdom. One day in the end of the story will reign with him. That reign begins in the millennium and it continues in the new creation. And that's what we look forward to. We've already entered the kingdom. We already have become a kingdom where Christ rules us. We are ruled One day we will rule with him in his kingdom. And don't you always have the sense of, well, what are we going to rule? Well, the text doesn't tell us what we will rule. But perhaps we get a hint from the beginning of the biblical story in Genesis. When we see that God's plan for man was to exercise dominion, rule in the earth. The psalmist summarized it real well. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And perhaps in the end, in the paradise of God, that's what it will be. We will reign, exercise dominion. And that privilege will only be for God's servants, for those who overcome. And the very last word of John's fourth vision is where we get the whole idea of eternity. It will be forever and ever. It will not cease. So Christ has revealed what eternity for his servants will be like. Why does he do that? So that they will long for it. He holds out a better creation, a better city, a better kingdom. And God is the center of that eternity. Today, God's throne stands in heaven. That's what John first saw in the heavenly vision in chapter 4, verse 2, the throne. But by the end of this book, the throne has made its way 
to the midst of the new creation. So that what heaven's saying, the kingdom of this world has indeed become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And like the beaches and the mountains and the jungles and the fall colors, that picture is set before us to capture our attention. The last word of warning is that this future blessing isn't for everyone. It's only for those who are loved and freed from their sin by the Lamb. Chapter 1, verse 5. It's for those who are ransomed by His blood. Chapter 5, verse 9. It's for those who have washed their robes in His blood. Chapter 7, verse 14. It's for those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 20, verse 27. It is the bride of the Lamb who will enjoy the eternal bliss of the paradise of God. It always has to do with a person's relationship to the Lamb. And that's how the story ends. Or perhaps that's how the story begins. Father, as we consider this, may you pluck our hearts, tune them to love you and to long for you. Help us to be those who overcome Help us to be those who have turned to the Lamb for forgiveness and grace and who follow the Lamb in pursuing you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.